Well, I, 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 do, I do have a, a word that I believe the Lord has uh, given me today. I think it will become clear uh, before I'm finished that uh, what I have to say today applies to everybody. I think it will be especially applicable to my brothers and sisters in the senior class. Then what I believe the word the Lord has given me on uh, for Wednesday, again, will be applicable to all, but uh, especially to those of you who are just uh, closer to starting your uh, years at Asbury rather than beginning, concluding them. I want to uh, direct your attention to the passage of Scripture uh, that we're just going over in my Old Testament classes, the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, a familiar story out of the life of Moses. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And let me just say, when God calls your name twice, you better listen up. And Moses said, here I am. Which personally, I would prefer to render. Y yes, sir. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. But as we'll see in a moment, apparently not too afraid that he won't argue with him. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have gone down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, 
and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And I've got one more verse to read, but before I read that verse, let me say to you that I am somewhat sympathetic with Moses' words in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? For after all, the only time prior to this when Moses has tried to save anybody ended in absolute total embarrassment and disaster back in chapter 2. And then here's my text for this morning. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Well, most of us uh, know this story, don't we? We know that for a good number of years, Moses has been working as a shepherd for his father-in-law in the land of Midian. And one day, which I assume was just like any other day, uh, Moses is out with those sheep. On this particular day, he must have led the sheep farther away than usual in search of pasturage into a more hilly, mountainous area when suddenly God shows up in this bush. Sometimes God shows up at the places you expect God to show up. But it occurs to me that just as often God shows up at unexpected places, uninvited and unannounced. He certainly did that on this occasion, didn't he? And on this occasion, he talks to Moses the shepherd. If you think about it, at least in the Old Testament, being a shepherd can be occupationally hazardous. By that I mean God seems to like calling shepherds to stop being shepherds. He took Moses, a shepherd, and made him a liberator. He took David from being a shepherd and called him to be a king, which is a kind of a shepherd if you think about it. And you remember the prophet Amos? He said, I, I wasn't a, a prophet. I wasn't even the son of a prophet, but the Lord just took me from, from being a shepherd. 
And as we saw a moment ago, Moses understandably remonstrates with God and says, who am I? What qualifications do I have to bring to this job? And God says, I will be with you. And furthermore, I'm going to give you a sign that I will be with you. And I want to land on this sign this morning. What is the sign that God gives that I will be with you? Well, this is the sign at the end of verse 12. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this very mountain where you are now pasturing your father-in-law's flocks. That's the sign. Now, if you think about it, it's going to take quite a while for that sign to come to pass. How long will it be between the promise of a sign and the fulfillment of that sign? There's another story in the book of Judges that is very similar to this one in Exodus chapter 3. You've heard of a guy called Gideon. The calling of Moses takes place by a bush. The calling of Gideon takes place by a tree. The Lord and the angel of the Lord appear to Moses. The angel and the angel of the Lord appear to Gideon. The Lord says, I want you to go to Moses and save my people. He says to Gideon, I want you to go and save my people. He says to Moses, I will be with you. He says to Gideon, I will be with you. He says to Moses, I will give you a sign. To Gideon, who asked God to give him a sign, right there on the spot, Judges 16 tells us that God gave Gideon immediately, not one, not two, but three signs that I, would, I am with you. But on this occasion, God says the sign that I am giving you is that at some undisclosed point in the future, you will worship me right here at this holy place. And I think if I'm Moses, I'm going to ask, is there any chance, Almighty One, that you could just maybe fast forward the sign? Because think of all the things that happen in between the promise of a sign and the fulfillment of that sign. I mean, he's got to go back to his father-in-law. He's got to take his wife and their children and make it back to the land of Egypt from the land of Midian. How long would something like that take? I think a good while. Then somehow he's got to set up a meeting with the Pharaoh. How long would something like that take? 
And then when that doesn't work out all that well, he has to set up a second meeting with the Pharaoh. And then we read about those 10 catastrophic, devastating plagues that came upon Egypt, and they would seem to have taken about a year to happen. And then Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, tells us that after two months out of Egypt, Moses led his people finally to the mountain. How long would that take? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it has to be a minimum of 12 or 13 months, maybe much longer than that. And I'm just wondering if there's any chance that by the time Moses eventually made it to this mountain and recalled the promise of that sign, he raised his eyes heavenward and said, it has come to pass. It's not terribly difficult to move out in faith when God has given you a sign in your present that you are in his will and following his ways. But what about when God says, and I will give you a sign that you are moving in the right direction but I am going to put that sign on hold until the proper time when I reveal it to you. I think I can personally identify with this myself. I remember when I was graduating from the seminary across the street It was fairly clear to me at this time that uh, I was my ministry would be in some form of Christian education. I had applied to two graduate schools, one very near home, the other far away from home where I did not know a soul. I knew if I went to one of those two, the one that was closer to our homes, University of Toronto, by the way, that if everything fell through, Shirley and I had both of our parents that we could fall back on and have them help us out. So that may have been the easier choice to make, but as I prayed about this, if God had a concern about it. What I seem to hear the divine voice saying to me is to go to the, go to the school where you have the least visible means of support and where you will have to trust me for everything or else fall flat on your face. And that meant that I would head up to Boston, Massachusetts from Wilmore, Kentucky. 
I can never forget. One of the last things I said to Shirley as we drove out of town up to Boston, I said, it's been great to come and study in Wilmore, but I think it's the last place I would ever want to live. <laughs> I believe at some point, one of the members of the Blessed Holy Trinity, I think it was the Holy Spirit, took out his notepad and simply wrote himself this little memo. We'll just have to see about that one. <laughs> I, I, I must tell you that in order to graduate from the seminary, I, uh, I, I wrote a, 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 a thesis on the book of Ecclesiastes. When I tell you the title, I think you will be unable to restrain your excitement. This was the title of my thesis. The question of Canaanite Phoenician influence upon the Hebrew text of the book of Ecclesiastes. Woo! <laughs> no, no, sit down. You can't check out the library. It's closed during chapel. Okay, so... That's what I did. And I decided just for my own benefit that I would try to memorize the book of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew. I got about a halfway at the most through chapter four. There are 12 chapters. I got about halfway through chapter four and then I quit come to the conclusion that the writer of that book was correct. All is vanity in a chasing after wind. <laughs> now, I tell you that for a moment, for a reason that you'll see in a moment. It's my first day in graduate school. My first class in graduate school. And I wonder if my Christian calling, training, and my seminary training has really prepared me to be competitive with some pretty sharp students. It's a class made up of first-year doctoral students. Second, we were all in together, second and third-year students. Somehow, I got to class late. And I can still remember that on the front row, there was just three seats, one of which was vacant. All of the other seats were taken. I had to sit there. The professor followed me in no more than 15 seconds. I'm extremely nervous and apprehensive. The professor says, we welcome you back or we welcome you for the first time if you're a new student. Then he said this, he said, now this is a graduate school, and this is a graduate level class. We invite questions, but we expect no elementary questions, which of course meant that I would ask no questions. <laughs> and then he told us to open our Hebrew Bible and start reading a passage in 1 Samuel, chapter 21. It's the story 
one of several stories where, where David is fleeing from Saul. He was always doing something like that, wasn't he, in that part of his life? And on this particular occasion that you can read about in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, I got that reference down for, for some psychotic reason. David, in order to be accepted by the local king, pretended to be insane. He said he started, because no one would turn away somebody whose marbles weren't all there. So it says he started scratching on the door, and he said, even let spit or saliva run down his beard. Now, I never heard my pastor preach extensively on that one. I don't even remember it from flannel graph days in VBS. <laughs> and I have no earthly reason why this one was picked out. But he turned to this first student on the first row, and this student read. Read it faster in Hebrew than I could in English. Turned out that he was a rabbi from Israel. <laughs> I said, dear God, I'm in trouble. <laughs> in between the two of us is a young lady who I subsequently found out turned out to be the most brilliant graduate student in our department, fluent in Hebrew, fluent in Arabic, fluent in Greek. She read it faster than the rabbi did. And all the time, I'm trying to read ahead to what my verse is and looking for what the Hebrew word for spit is. Because it doesn't occur a lot of times. And Dr. Gordon looked at me, and my heart's thumping. And he said, Mr. Hamilton, you're a new student, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, we're going to ask only returning students to recite on this first day. I sang the doxology in Hebrew. <laughs> the next day, I made sure I got to class on time. One of the first ones there and intentionally took a seat in the back row behind the biggest guy in the class I could find. This rabbi was still on the front row. This lady was on the front row, and I can't remember who the third student was. And he came to this lady, who was the second one to recite. And somehow I don't remember all of the circumstances, but, uh, but he said, he said this, there's a verse in the scripture that goes like this. V'shabech ani ha-metim shekavar metu. Asher ha-hayim hayim edana. He said, Miss so-and-so, do you know where that is? She said, no, sir, I have no idea. I've never heard it before. Does anybody in the class know where that verse is? And a flashlight went on side. I said, I know that verse. I leaned over behind this behemoth in front of me. <laughs> and 
And I said, uh, sir, that is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 2. Which, if you're interested in the translation, I praise those who are already dead more than I do those who are still living. It's kind of a picker-upper. <laughs> so that's right, that's right. He said, uh, does anybody know the significance of the first couple of words of that sentence, the ani shabayak, the shabayak ani, excuse me. Nobody said anything. I lean out a second time. <laughs> now, you were not going to understand what I said, but this is what I said. I said, sir, that is an illustration of the infinitive absolute followed by the independent personal pronoun as a surrogate for the perfect. He said, you're right. <laughs> well, I'm going to roll. He said, does that occur anywhere else in the Bible, or is it unique to this passage? No one says it. I lean out a third time. I said, well, sir, it actually occurs in Esther chapter 3, verse 13, and I quoted it, and it occurs in Esther chapter 9, verse 1, and I quoted it. Remember what I told you I did across the street? At which point that Jewish rabbi on the front row jumps to his feet, points one finger back at me and one finger at the professor and says, how does he know that? <laughs> now, I, I, I need to tell you at, at that stage in our life, uh, Shirley and I had very little capital. We were moving to a place where we knew nobody. We were moving to a place where we would have to trust God completely. The third day, I went to my third graduate student, the department secretary or staff assistant, as we would say today, met me and said, uh, Dr. Gordon would like to see you in his office. It's kind of like being called to the principal's office when you're a kid. And uh, so I walked in having no idea what he would say. And he said, uh, he said, I really liked uh, what you did in class last time. He says, as a matter of fact, I liked it so much that I am raising your scholarship from what I've already offered you to the place where we will pay completely your total expenses for the next four years. And God gave the sign. So I wanted a sign when I was across the street. Give me a sign now. Where I'm supposed to go 
give me a sign now what I'm supposed to do with my life. And, and with some people, apparently he does it. He did it certainly with Gideon. And he's done it with some of you. But at least for myself, and I suspect some of you, it's going to be a bit more risky than that. And that is where I perhaps have received my most profound lesson in life. That not only is God's way the best way, but God can be trusted. God can be trusted. And if you and I will go in that direction, he will lead us in the calling upon our life. And so that's how I came to leave Wilmore and go to New England. And then God being my helper on Wednesday, I'd like to share with you how in the world did I ever end up at a little place called Asbury College? Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord, for the privilege of knowing that we are not responsible for writing the script for our own lives. We thank you that you are heaven's script writer and you deserve more than an Oscar. You deserve our worship and our adoration and our trust. And so, dear, kind God, especially do I pray for my sisters and brothers in this senior class to my left as they get ready to turn to a new page in their life. May they have the assurance, Lord, without necessarily having the details, that you are in control of their lives and that to acknowledge you and to trust you is the most fruitful thing that any of them will be able to do in these coming weeks and coming months. We bless you and thank you for your goodness and mercy to all of us that follows us and pursues us all the days of our lives. And for that, we give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.